podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. So Jesus told them this parable where he said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So let me start by asking you a question. What kinds of adjectives would you use to describe Jesus? Somebody came up to you and said, who do you put your faith in? So I put my faith in Jesus of Nazareth. They said, well, what is he like? How would you describe him? Now, this isn't Bible study, like on Zoom on Wednesday night, where we could spend like five minutes and you could throw out your answers. Um, So if you like doing that sort of thing, Wednesday night, seven o'clock on Zoom, that's time for all sorts of great discussion. But I'm going to give what I think are probably some of the answers that you would give or people like you would give. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gentle. He's merciful. He's loving, he's generous, he's gracious. How many of you, though, if you were asked to give an adjective about Jesus, would say, Jesus is crazy? Probably not very many of you. And yet here, the very beginning of Mark's gospel, it's only chapter three. We haven't made a lot of headway into this shortest of all the gospels. Jesus's mother, the Virgin Mary that we just spoke about in the creed, and his brothers, two of whom will later after the resurrection go on to write epistles in the New Testament, have come to take him away. They've come, as we would say in our culture, with the men with the white coats to bring him to some place to get help, to get treatment. The word in Greek that is used for Jesus is existemi, which comes from the same family as ecstasis, which is where we get our word ecstasy, which used to be also an emotion, but now is apparently also a drug. But I'm talking about the emotion. And for somebody to be ecstatic in the old understanding of that word was literally to be out of their mind. That's what it meant for somebody to be in an ecstatic state, hence crazy. All right, how about another adjective for Jesus? Demoniac, demon-possessed. Now, I do know there are some in our culture that would probably go with that and say, clearly, Jesus was on the side of the demons, not on the side of the good. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. That's what the religious leaders of the time accused Jesus of. That he was in league with Bilzebub or Baal Zebub. Baal, which you know from the Old Testament, means master. And Zebub is the flies, from which we get Lord of the flies. That's what Jesus is being accused of being in league with. 
He's also accused of having an unclean spirit. Hence, Jesus goes on to talk about those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And in case anybody is sitting here this morning thinking, I've always worried about this verse, who are the people that blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, every time we recite the creed, we talk about the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that gives faith. Who is the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, but the one who does not have faith in Jesus? And so, yes, indeed, the only unforgivable sin is to die without faith in Christ. Otherwise, even that could be forgiven. So who are those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, the ones who with their dying breath curse Jesus and say he's demon-possessed and say he was crazy? I bet you, though, that coming to church this morning, if you were thinking about Jesus at all and not worried about the traffic and the closure on Auto Route 40 and whether you'd make the bus— I bet you were not thinking about the fact that I'm going to be coming to church to talk about a demon-possessed crazy man, and not just to talk about him, but to worship at his feet. What do you call somebody who rejects their family? That brother or sister who doesn't want to have anything to do with mom or dad or siblings anymore and goes their own way and does their own thing, maybe even moves away from the country and cuts off all communication. Do we not call them the black sheep of the family? There's a whole other adjective for Jesus. Jesus, the good black sheep shepherd. The black sheep of the Josephsons, right? Jesus, son of Joseph. Oh, he's the crazy brother. He's the one we don't talk about. And what do you call someone who breaks into somebody's house, binds up the owner of the house, and steals their stuff? A pirate? A burglar? A robber? And yet that's precisely how Jesus describes himself as the guy who breaks into the fortress, finds the warlord who's responsible for the whole operation, binds him up, and makes off with all the stuff. That's Jesus. So, Jesus, the crazy man, demon-possessed man, unclean spirit man, pirate, robber, burglar. What on earth is going on in this gospel reading, what is Jesus trying to tell us about his mission? What is Jesus trying to say about why he was sent into the world from the right hand of the Father? It's actually quite simple. Jesus is saying, I am here to mount a coup. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, I am coming into this world, and I am going to overthrow the government. And I am going to institute a new reign, a new kingdom that is going to be absolutely 100% completely different than anything that you have ever seen before. And it all starts with me binding the one who thinks he's the true king. Is that not what Jesus told the crowds in the temple courtyards before his crucifixion? In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now 
Will this planet be under new management? And now, will there be a new king and a new ruler? God, you see, was the king in the beginning, a beneficent king, a gracious king, a merciful king, a kind and generous king, a king that provided a garden in which the first man and woman could live with everything their hearts desired. Apples, raspberries, pomegranates, mangoes, sugar cane that probably didn't even rot the teeth. You can imagine sugar-free sugar cane. Everything was perfect in that garden. And God said, this garden is yours so long as I am yours and I remain your king. But somebody else came into the garden and said, I want this kingdom for myself. I want to be in charge and I want to rule. And by deceiving Adam and Eve and getting them to disobey God's commandment, he enthroned himself. Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, he took over and replaced God's gracious, merciful, kind, generous, beneficent rule with his own rule of cruelty and evil and hatred and convinced all the rest of us that he was the real king. What does Satan's rule look like? I mean, we could spend all morning describing what Satan's kingdom is like. But I think one of the best descriptions comes from Galatians chapter 5 in Eugene Peterson's translation of it from the message. Paul says, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time, following Satan's rule. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, brutal tempers, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes, divided lives, small-minded, lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, I could go on. And Satan loves it because this is the rule he wants. This is the kingdom over which he presides. Until Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is so small that you can't imagine it'll amount to anything. And it grows up to become a plant that offers shelter to all the birds in the field. The kingdom of God is like a sower that goes around scattering seed that eventually falls on good soil and grows up and produces an incredible crop. The kingdom of God. It's like a master that sends, finally, his own son into the vineyard to get what is rightfully his. And Jesus goes on, and what Jesus is doing in every single one of those parables is announcing new management of this world.
that the king of this world is being bound up, thrown in a corner, and his goods being plundered. Now, you would think that living under such a horrible ruler, such a horrible king, such a completely corrupt government, we would be overjoyed <laughs> to have someone finally come amongst us and say, I have come to give you life. I have come to rescue you from the one who is a liar and a murderer. But no, we've actually kind of come to like it under the old ruler. Now, how can that be? Well, we talk about this thing called Stockholm Syndrome, right? This idea that when you've been captured by someone and you've lived under them for so long, you've come to identify with them. They're mean, they're cruel, they're nasty, but, but maybe they still love me. Spouses that live in abusive relationships, children with abusive parents, all find this sort of symptom happening to them, right? Well, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time they won't beat me. Maybe this time they're going to have a kind word for me. And so when somebody comes along and says, this is not the life that God meant you to live, we can hardly imagine it. We even have an expression that says, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite science fiction novels, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which further on into the trilogy, we meet this character called Wonko the Sane. And Wonko lives in a rather unusual house in California where the entire house is built inside out. So you can imagine like a courtyard with all the rooms outside the main courtyard, with the roofs outside, the outside of the courtyard, over top of the dining room and the living room and everything else. The main characters of the book go to visit Wonko the Sane. I can't quite remember the reason why. But they meet his wife, and she says Wonko is outside the asylum, which meant that he was in the courtyard. <laughs> so they go into the courtyard to meet Wonko, who is outside the asylum. And they ask him, what, what is all this about? Like, why is your house inside out? Why do you call yourself Wonko the Sane? Why do you say that the world is the asylum and that this small little courtyard you have made is the only place that is outside the asylum? And he said, well, one day I saw a box of toothpicks. And on the side of the box of toothpicks, I read the following. Instructions. Hold stick near center of its length. Moisten pointed end in mouth. Insert in tooth space, blunt end next to gum. Use gentle in-out motion. Wonko the Sane said, it seemed to me that any civilization that had so far lost its head as to need to include a set of detailed instructions for use on a package of toothpicks was no longer a civilization in which I could live and stay sane. That's what's happened to all of us, you see, and the human race. We have gotten so used to insanity so used to things being crazy 
that when a truly sane person finally comes to live amongst us, when a truly mentally, spiritually, and physically healthy person walks among us and speaks to us and eats and drinks among us, we assume he must be the crazy one. Which is precisely why Jesus' mother and brothers have come to take him away. And precisely why the religious leaders say he's possessed by the demons. Because looking at the things that Jesus does, looking at the things he is saying, look at the pronouncements he is making, they cannot but conclude that he is the one who is crazy. Family ties. Blood ties. They're the center of our identity, right? Blood is thicker than water. I have to do what's right for my family before I look after other people. Along comes Jesus, and he says, no. Blood is not thicker than water. In fact, the water of that baptismal font is far thicker than any blood that runs through our veins. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus says. Not the people whose DNA I share, but the ones who do the will of my father. What about getting to the top of the pyramid, looking after number one, making sure you've got a career and that you climb the ladder? Jesus says, get over yourself. I like the way Paul puts it in the epistles. He says, do not be fooled by those who think they're something when they're nothing. And we all know people in the world who are convinced that they are something, right? But not in Jesus's eyes. What about allowing Satan to strongman his way with everyone? Jesus says, not on my watch. I have come to bind the strongman, and I'm going to plunder his house. Jesus says to the crazy inmates of this insane asylum ruled by Satan that his rule is done, and there is now a coup, and I am now in charge. Mark 3.27, the heart of our gospel reading for today, is Jesus' mission statement, according to Mark. This is why Jesus has come. This is what this whole thing is about. It is why Jesus is going to be crucified. It is why he has to die, to bind the strong man and set you and I free. To be able to stand before you and say, I forgive you all your sins. Satan can no longer accuse you. You have a clean conscience. You are now God's children, and I can set you out free into the world to live under my rule and not Satan's. That's the good news, according to Mark. Jesus is doing a takeover, a change of government, a coup. And if Jesus is leading a coup, and if Jesus is the real king of all people and the real ruler of the planet, what does that make us? Kind of revolutionaries. <laughs> because if they call Jesus crazy, what are they going to call us? They said Jesus is the one possessed by demons. What are they going to say about us? What are they going to say about us when we say, this is my family? 
What are they going to say about us when they say we are not going to march by the world's rules? What are they going to say about us when we say it is more important that we love our neighbor as ourselves than that we look out for number one? Same things they said about Jesus, won't they? And yet Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak. Jesus' revolution is a revolution of a word, an announcement of freedom, a gospel, a good news announcement. And we, as revolutionaries, go out into the world to announce the same thing, that Satan is done, he has been bound, his kingdom is over, it has no future, and the real king, despite all appearances, is this man Jesus, the Son of God, who died for the whole world on a cross outside Jerusalem. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote when he talked about mere Christianity. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. That is the mission of Jesus, to bind up the strong man, to divide Satan's house so that it cannot stand, to conquer the demons who have bound us in their lies and set us free. It's a coup. And we are all revolutionaries. And so what can we say but, viva la revolucion, and long live the king. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless your weekend.